Good morning. It's Friday morning, the last day of the high school camp at Silver Birch Ranch. It's been a wonderful week, a foundational week, a week where our amazing senior high staff have lived with our students and encouraged them to radically follow their Lord. God was moving, and I thank you for your prayers. This is an exciting day for our church, much more than a finish of a series. It's the day we get to focus on the revelation of Jesus Christ, the 66th book of the Bible. We started our overview of the Bible and our focus on the God of the Bible just about eight months back. It has been quite the adventure, which has strengthened both my faith and the knowledge of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible shares the grand narrative of God's grace in our world and in our lives. The Holy Scriptures tell us of a Heavenly Father who created us in His image to have a relationship with us. The Bible tells us of a loving Son who paid the debt of our sin on a cross in order to restore our broken relationship with the Father. And the Scriptures tell us of the Spirit of God who now indwells and empowers every believer so we may experience life and be on mission with God. I have just hit some of the biblical highlights and know there's so much more to learn and to digest. It is just the tip of the iceberg. I pray you've been inspired, convicted, and motivated to go deeper, both in your relationship with our Lord and in His Holy Scriptures. This morning, we get to look at the last book, the book that will help us understand a little more of how the story of God ends. I have used some of the Read Scripture teaching videos, both in our bumpers and as resources for my teaching. They continue to be some of the best resources available. The Book of the Revelation of Jesus the author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John. He makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects 
vexes readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we, we've prayed this part of the prayer so long. We have asked that your kingdom would come. And we see little snippets of your kingdom and your reign and your rule. But we long for the day, Father, when it will come in full power, in full glory, and, and look so very, very different than it does today. Father, the book of Revelation gives us that hope. We are so excited to open up that book today. We know, Lord, that there's a lot going on in there, and we would ask that you would be glorified in all that happens today. We love you, Lord. And we would ask that you would come you would come soon. In Jesus' name, amen. John writes a letter to seven churches. I'd love for you to turn your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. If you're newer to that, it's all the way in the back of the Bible. All right? And you can go there. And So if you open up your flat screens or your Bibles... Go to Revelation chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading out of the NLT version. I'll start at verse 1. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must come soon. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all those who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And it, this is going to be important. I, I, I'm going to stop for a moment, but this is why Revelation was written. I, I know, again, that there's times and there's places, and you've all been under teachers, and you've read books, and, and, and we have this idea that, that Revelation has all these secret codes in it, and we're going to find out exactly how everything turns out. Well, we are going to find out how everything turns out. But what I want you to know from the very beginning, even from our intro, this letter was written to seven churches. All right? Then he goes on, Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ 
He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made or he has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Then John writes this, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day. Again, interesting. It was the Lord's day. And he was worshiping, and God came to him in a very special way. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. He writes to seven churches. Then, starting in verse 12, the symbolic language begins to jump out. It doesn't really get intense until chapter 4, but exiled John begins by addressing problems facing each one of these seven churches. And so in chapters 2 and 3, he talks to the churches, but there's some issues. Some really good things are going on, but, but there's some things that most of these churches are going to need to repent of. And so back then, John just starts writing out. He addressed two churches, for the most part, about their apathy. He started off with the church at Ephesus, probably, again, out of all the churches, the most mature, the most doctrinally sound. And he starts off in just saying, you know, you people at the church of Ephesus, you work hard and you endure. I would love to be able to have that reputation. But then he goes a little further and he says, but you've become quite apathetic. In spite of all of your work, you have lost your first love. Do you remember what it was like when you first came to faith, when you recognized God's grace and you were overwhelmed by what he did for you? You've lost all that fervor. Repent. He talks to the church at Sardis and he says, you have a great reputation. But your situation's really desperate. You're dead. You look really good on the outside, but I want you to know you are dead. Repent. Go back to a spot where God means something to you and you love and you adore Him. And then there was a church that was affected by their affluence. It was the church at Laodicea. And basically, 
John writes, your riches have deceived you. You are a rich church. You are a comfortable church. But you are actually a disgusting church. You are like drinking lukewarm coffee. Uh, hot coffee's okay. Uh, cold coffee's okay. But you're lukewarm, and I just want to spit you out. Don't be deceived anymore. Riches aren't the important thing. Your wealth isn't what's going to help you in the kingdom. Repent. Then he talks about immorality. To the church of Pergam, Pergamum. Interesting. He, he starts off and just says, you are so faithful. You really do love me, or most of you do, but I have something against you. You tolerate poor teaching and excuse sin. In fact, Tyree said just about the same thing. You're faithful, you're loving, you're servants. What great adjectives. Even you are growing in your faith, but again, you tolerate false teachers. You don't really... Look at sin the way it is. You allow idolatry and immorality just to kind of flow through. And you know what? You need to repent. You need to repent. A lot of good things, but this is stopping you from being the testimony that I need you to be. And then there's two churches. He actually just applauds. Doesn't talk about anything negative. It's the church of Smyrna. And, and he just says to this church, you are suffering deeply. Some of you are even imprisoned. What I want to tell you, remain faithful, okay? And then there's a church in Philadelphia. And almost the same message you have obeyed in the midst of really hard situations. And I just want you to know, be courageous. Your reward is going to come. The prescription for the apathetic and the affluent and the immoral was repent. You may look good on the outside. You may think everything is good. But what what I want you to know is you're not fooling me. And to the faithful, in the midst of suffering, horrendous persecution, he says, be courageous. Be courageous. I will protect you. Your reward will come. You see, John was literally shouting to these seven churches. And this was a huge message, and sometimes we miss it. But persecution is not only going to come, but it's going to get vicious. It will force the church to choose between compromise or faithfulness. Now, some of you history buffs know that Emperor Nero's persecution had probably already passed at this time. Emperor Domitian, though, was probably the thorn in the flesh that literally John was talking about. People were going to need to choose. Will you be loyal to Jesus or will you be loyal to Rome? And the temptation to deny Jesus and embrace the culture was so very, very strong. So Jesus is calling these early believers, all right, and calling them to be conquerors and promises a reward for all those who do endure. In fact, John equates faithfulness with conquering or enduring and that they will receive their reward, well, at the end of the letter in Revelation 21 and 22, which he hasn't got to yet. 
So John's first three chapters drive the whole main storyline. There's questions after you read the first three chapters. Will God's people endure? What actually is God's plan? And is there going to be justice? When is this going to happen? Well, the rest of the book really answers these questions. In chapters 4 and 5, we get a vision of God's throne room in this full apocryphal genre. Sometimes the apocryphal literature, the literature that's so rich with symbols, uh, sometimes scares us as we read through the scriptures. But this was an accepted Hebrew genre. This was something that the Jews used to be able to tell stories. And John is using the same one. Most of this symbolic language is taken from Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7. And sometimes we shy away from the book of Revelation simply because we're unfamiliar with some of the Old Testament prophets. But if, again, you were folks who understood much of the Old Testament and much of what the prophecies were there, the book of Revelation makes a whole lot more sense. We find in chapters 4 and 5 that there's creatures and there's elders, and basically it represents all of creation and all of the human nations, and they're all bowing before God and the Lamb, and they're worshiping. But there's a dilemma. In God's hand is a scroll with seven seals. The scroll represents the message of the prophets. And we know that because in Isaiah 8, Ezekiel 2, and Daniel 12, it tells us that. All right? But this message from the prophets is all about how God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Every one of us love a book where we know the good guy wins. Everyone loves a movie where we know the heroine wins. We love great endings. And sometimes, in the midst of our normal living, oh, life is hard. It is. And especially for these seven churches. And realistically, what God is going to do is reveal to these churches and to us how God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. But there's a dilemma. Even though we want to hear the end, even though we want to know if the good guy wins, in spite of all this suffering and injustice that's all around us, who can open the scroll? So John hears that the messianic king can open it. There's the line of Judah, the root of David. And so I would imagine he even is getting a little excited here. But John sees something different than he hears. John sees a sacrificed, bloodied lamb who is alive and ready to open up the scroll. He was hoping for some military conqueror. He was hoping that Jesus would come on a white horse and make all things right. And by the way, he will in just a little bit. But not 
right now. Jesus, the sacrifice, bloodied lamb, is critical to this story. And actually, if you've been with us for the eight months, critical for all of the story of the Bible. God's kingdom was inaugurated or ushered in through the crucified Messiah. The cross was not his defeat. It was his enthronement. So we see God on the throne with the bloody lamb next to him. And they are being worshipped. Then we read, if you did, chapters 6 through 11. And there are three sets of seven. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Now again, this is probably for the most part where most of us stop reading. All right? Saying, oh boy, your bowls. Wow, what is going on here? I hope to encourage you, maybe give you a perspective that will help you. And for those who even want to dig deeper, they'll be able to do that. But each of these sets, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they all depict God's kingdom, God's reign and rule coming to earth as it is in heaven. Some feel this is a literal sequence of events. I lean more toward that John is describing the time period between Christ's resurrection and his return from three different perspectives. In this text, John sees that the Lamb conquers his enemies, not with a sword, but by loving them and dying for them. How ludicrous! The example of the Lamb is the message of the Lamb's scroll, and it reveals God's mission to his army, the church. Nations, all folks around us will see the church or believers imitate the loving sacrifice of the Lamb. It is God's mercy shown by believers or followers that will bring the nations to repentance. This is literally the message of the letter. God still cares. God still loves. God still wants people to respond all the way to the end. But at the end of chapter 11, we see all the nations shaken as God's kingdom is coming to earth in a powerful way. You may not initially see this, but in Revelation chapter 11, starting at verse 16 through 19, I've got it on the screen, and I know it's small, but I am going to go back and forth here, so I'd I'd love for you to try to read this with me. The 24 elders, sitting on their thrones before God, fell on their faces to the ground and worshipped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who always was, for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. Let me say that a little different way. Angry nations, people without God, now will get a taste of your anger. It's a time to judge the dead or those without God, those who have chosen not to have God part of their lives, and reward your servants, the prophets, those faithful, 
as well as your holy people and all who fear your name from the least to the greatest. It's time to destroy all those who have caused destruction on the earth. Then, then, and I'd circle that if it's my Bible, in heaven, the temple of, the God, was, temple of God was opened and the ark of the, his covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed and roared and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. God's kingdom and justice has arrived. Again, using apocryphal language. Then in chapter 12, John begins to describe the basic cosmic struggle that began way back in Genesis 3, the very, very first chapter in our huge series called The Story. His message is clear to the churches. Enemies are real, but you're not going to be able to see all your enemies. There's spiritual problems out there. There is warfare going on. The enemy wants to deceive you. John hears God giving the churches a choice in chapter 14. Some of you are going, Rick, I, I never heard anyone like whip through Revelation like this. It's okay. We're, we're going to try to keep moving here. Not too fast, but fast enough. But here it is. At the end of chapter 14, God is literally giving churches, these churches, a choice. He says this, resist the lure of Babylon. You're going to hear a lot about Babylon. Babylon, in this context, is any godless person, any godless power, any godless philosophy. All right? And he says this. He gives the churches a choice. Resist the lure of Babylon. All those false promises. All the things that Satan or the enemy is promising you. Life without Jesus doesn't exist. Don't believe it. Resist the lure of Babylon and follow the Lamb. You'll find life when you follow the Lamb. Stay true to obeying the Lamb. Or follow Babylon or the beast. All this kind of mixes up. Follow Babylon or the beast and suffer defeat. You will, and you will suffer all those consequences. In fact, they're eternal consequences. Then in chapter 15 and 16, John focuses on God's judgment. And basically what you'll read is that the pouring out of the bowls, the, the bowls of judgment. And again, if you could just picture a bowl filled with liquid and, and just kind of pouring out. And God says, okay, my judgment is coming. I know some have repented, but many have not. And if you read through chapters 15 and 16, you will see a lot of the verbiage that God used uh, back during the plagues of Egypt. And he's pouring out this judgment, just like he was judging Egypt back then in Exodus. All right? But then John sees the ultimate battle between God and his enemies as the sixth bowl is poured out. Again, try to picture with me. There is a dragon. 
and a beast. And they gather all the nations that are on the planet in order to make war against God's army or God's people. And the place they meet is called Armageddon. Now to the Jews, this was a normal battlefield. It wasn't something that was, you know, you make a movie about, more or less. It was a place where a lot of fighting happened. But what God is saying is this, is that, hey, there will come a time when my enemies try to rise up against me. And there's going to be a battle. Some feel this is describing a future battle, while others feel it's a metaphor for God's final justice for evil. Either way, I just want you to say, uh, hear me say, God is using this language found in the book of Ezekiel when God talks about Gog, G-O-G. Gog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And again, you read about Gog, you've, some of you have, and you're like, whoa, what's going on here? But Gog, back in Ezekiel 38 and 39, is the symbol of a rebellious nation coming before God to face judgment. And so God uses this same language. And he's basically saying, hey, I I just want you to know is that there's going to be a huge battle and I am going to win. Some of you might even be saying now, before we go any further, why is he speaking in these symbols? Why do we have to know in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, all these different prophets? What is the purpose of all this? Remember that John was an exile on the island of Patmos. There was huge persecution going on. And what John realistically did was able to get this letter of hope to all those that would actually understand it. The Romans would read this and think that the guy was a looney tune. I mean, some of us read it and we think he was a looney tune, you know. But he was using all these symbols to be able to bring hope and encouragement and remind them about the kingdom of God and how it will win. So at the end of chapter 16, John sees God pour out the seventh bowl of wrath. It's the last one. It's the fourth and the final depiction of the day of the Lord where evil is defeated for all. Up through chapter 16 now, the apostle had fully explained the whole message in the scroll. So beginning in chapter 17... John begins to expand some themes that were previously introduced in the letter to go back and to help us understand just a little bit more. He talked about the fall of Babylon. And what I shared with you is Babylon is any godless person, any godless power, any godless authority, any philosophy. And God wants to make sure that these churches understand 
Anything other than my philosophy, anything other than a relationship with me, it will fall. Another thing he talks about is the final battle, where evil is totally defeated. And lastly, he talks about the arrival of the new Jerusalem. Each one of these themes explore the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. God uses Old Testament images describing Babylon, entire, and Edom. We find it in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. To share one thing, Rome is the latest power. But Rome is really a just another Babylon who is displaying its economic and military power to exalt themselves as a god. Rome thought that they were the next best thing. This isn't a picture of the past or the future. What is so beautiful about this, it's a striking portrait of the human condition throughout all of history. And it's repeated over and over and over and over and over again. Back in the Old Testament, there was Babylon and it fell. There was Tyre, a mighty, and it fell. All right? And there was Edom and it fell. And then there was Rome, as you know, but it was quite powerful at the time. But it fell. Because again, all of its philosophies and all of its energy was trying to make life productive without God. And literally, this has happened all the way through, and it's a striking portrait of what we go through in this cycle over and over and over You see, Babylons will come and go until the day Christ returns to eliminate Babylon once for all. Now up to this point, the day of the Lord, the day when when God brings all of his justice, the day when he eliminates all of evil, The future is absolutely bright for every believer. Now, up to this point, the day of the Lord has been depicted in Revelation as a fire, as an earthquake, or as a harvest. In the last part of chapter 19 and 20, John focuses on how the day of the Lord will literally come. It's depicted as a final battle. He talks about it in the beginning of these chapters and at the end of these chapters, he talks about it in two ways. He also clearly wants everyone to know that the faithful martyrs, those who are God followers, will be vindicated. It doesn't look good right now. It's at this time that Jesus shows up on a white stallion. Finally! The King of kings, the Lord of lords. But again, he's pictured in an odd way. His, his whole robe is covered with blood. But he shows up. Jesus 
is showing us and telling us that he died for his enemies, but right now he's going to hold them accountable. They chose not to receive the grace that he was giving. Ironically, we see the hellfire that God's enemies have unleashed since our world began, all right, since the garden, now becomes their destiny. God gives folks who choose not to submit to him an eternity without God. You'll read through this. The martyrs come alive and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. The dragon who led the rebellion against God rallies all the nations to rebel against God's kingdom in a great battle. But the beast dragon, you'll have to read it, then suffers eternal defeat before the throne of God. And those who are defeated, they are given exactly what they want. To exist by themselves and for themselves. So the dragon, or Babylon, and unbelievers are quarantined from God forever. You know, as I was preparing this week's message... I was on YouTube, and I came upon an interview with a slew of atheists. And they were very intelligent, and they were very sharp, and they were articulate way beyond anything I could imagine. But they were harsh, and they were arrogant, and they were calloused. And, and I don't know where everybody is here. And, and I'm not trying to say that every atheist is harsh and, and, and arrogant and, and so on. But, but actually, it didn't make me feel like putting my dukes up. Like, I, I'm going to defend God. What you're just saying just isn't right. You know what literally happened to me is I heard this group just talking about the non-existence of God or what kind of a God did this and why I don't need God. I, I started to tear up. And I was sad. And I, I had a different thought. I don't want to be right on this. But I know I am. Not at all in some arrogant way, but it's what the Bible says. If you continually push God away, if you continually push God out, if you don't want anything to do with God, eventually you're going to get your wish. But you and I have no idea how horrific that would be. And right now, some of us are, are so callous. Some of our friends are so callous. I don't, I don't need God. I don't need His grace. I don't... But what Revelation says is that if that's what you keep choosing, that is what you get. 
Now, just a side note here, and some of you are just wondering, you know, Rick, there's some various views on this whole millennial thing. You know, the millennium, like, uh, you know what? I'm skipping rope here. Not really here to debate or discuss those things. If you'd like to chat another time, or we'll do that. But wherever you land on the millennium spectrum, this is the point. Hear this. Okay? can argue all you want or debate. Jesus will return as king to deal with evil and vindicate his followers. That's what's going to happen. You can bank on that. That is a hope for every believer. No matter how hard this world is right now, how unjust it feels, how not fair everything is. Because you're right. It isn't. But this brings us to chapters 21 and 22. The last two chapters in the Bible where it's John's final vision. It's during these two chapters which again, my guess is many of you have read. But if you put it in the context and you recognize, this is so amazing. God receives his bride, the church, those who have come to faith, those who have trusted Jesus as Savior, those who are part of his family. It's at this time that they come. One of the greatest parts in both of these chapters, you'll read, God now comes and lives with us forever. And he says it three or four or five different ways. He goes, I'm going to be with you now. It's going to be like at the garden before the fall, where Adam and Eve could just talk back and forth and just enjoy God's amazing blessing. But that's what's going to happen God will live with his kids forever. God is going to make all things new. You'll read, and he makes some unbelievable promises in these chapters. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And let's face it, this earth, although there's parts that are rather ugly, it's pretty cool. The sun rises, the sun sets, the mountains, the oceans, under the oceans, up on, I mean, the skies. I mean, doesn't that just drop your jaw anyway? But God says, you know what? It's all been tainted. I'm going to make something new and beautiful. There's going to be a new Garden of Eden. There's going to be a new Jerusalem. And by the way, this was all predicted or prophesied in Isaiah and Genesis and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zephaniah. So Rick, I've never even heard of that. It's in the Bible. All right? But God and the Lamb will fill the space so there is no temple and no darkness. You read about streets and the rivers of life that are flowing. And again, I I know that John had an accurate picture, but how do you put into language what God has designed? I mean, what he did right here is pretty good. But he's going to shock us. He's going to blow us away. 
And it's all because of God's grace. It's not because you or me are pretty sharp and wonderful and terrific people. Although you probably are sharp and wonderful and terrific. Let me just remind you this. Revelation is an inspired, symbolic vision for the seven churches and for every generation since. John did not write this book as a secret code in order for you to decipher the timetable of Christ's return. Let me just tell you, over and over the scripture says, you don't know when he's coming back. He's coming back, we just don't know. There are certain signs, yes. But to God, one day is like a thousand years, you know. I mean, this message was given to a group of churches 2,000 years ago. I'm assuming they thought Jesus would come like pretty soon. And my guess is he is going to come pretty soon. But it's been 2,000 years since this was written. That's all I'm saying. Revelation reveals mankind's pattern. All of our pattern. The tendency for every human kingdom to become a Babylon. To take the place of God. Every culture. The enemy deceives us. And the message is resist Babylon. Don't listen to the enemy. I've got so much for you. I've got abundant living now, and I've got eternal life for you. Do you understand it? The enemy is a liar. Is a liar. Babylon does not give life. It does not give purpose. It does not give fulfillment. It does not give anything but a short buzz. Period. But Revelation also reveals a promise. And this is what's cool. Jesus will not allow Babylon to go unchecked. He will deal with the evil and remove evil and make all things new. As I said, we all love the books and the movies and the plays. For the good guy wins at the end. We stand there. We applaud. Yes. Cool. Folks, we will have no idea when we finally shut our eyes and we meet our Savior. Where he welcomes us, not because we have been so good, so faithful, so wonderful. Because by his grace we put our faith in his son's payment so that we might become a son or a daughter and that we can live underneath his lordship, underneath his kingship and listen and obey. You heard me pray. We give not because we're supposed to. We give because we love Jesus. We serve not because we're supposed to. The message was there's a bunch of servers in that first set of seven churches. Repent. Don't do things because you're supposed to. Do things because you know Jesus. Do things because you have a relationship with Jesus. Do things because you're overwhelmed with Jesus. 
And if you're not there, that's what our fellowship is about. That's why we come together every Sunday. That's why we have life groups. It's so that we might be able to encourage you on the journey so that you get to know our Lord and our Savior. So that someday when you die, it's a celebration. This should motivate all of the faithful until the king returns. I'm going to close with Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. A song was sung just a little bit before I started speaking. And we are going to rise and continue to worship and sing these words again. But in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, He who is the faithful witness to all these things, Jesus, said, Yes, I am coming soon. And our response is amen. Well, Rick, it's not the end of the prayer. No, no, amen just means yes, I agree. I agree. Jesus, you said you're coming soon? Yes, bring it. And then he says, come, Lord Jesus. Or Maranatha. Maranatha. Come. Lord, we desire. We're tired of the evil, the injustice. We know you're delaying because you love, you love, you love, and you want more to respond. And every one of us, okay, I got a neighbor. Okay, I got a son. Okay, I got a grandma. They need Jesus. They need to respond. I want them to enjoy God for eternity. I want them to walk with God. I want them to enjoy the blessings. Jesus, you are coming. And you're going to come on a white horse. You're not going to be a bloody lamb. A weak, powerful. And you're going to bring justice. You're going to make everything right. You're going to give us things we don't deserve. Never have deserved. Yes, it's you, God. Thank you. We love you. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, we, we are so messed up sometimes. We think this world has more to offer. The lure of Babylon, the money, the power, the accolades, And God, it disappears, all of that. As soon as we shut our eyes. You've given us an opportunity to walk with you, to develop a relationship with you, to be on mission with you, to glorify you. Oh God, would that happen in this church, in this county, in this state, in our world? Would you come? But if you don't come today or tomorrow, would we be faithful? 
Would we resist the lies of Babylon? Would we thwart the enemy with our faith, the faith you give us? Oh God, we pray today for that. In your name.